As always, we want to hear from you. Are you in the market for a new car? Do you just have a question about your existing car? Our phone number, 1-800-399-3566, 1-800-399-3566. You can send a brief email to talk at mpbn.net, tweet at Main Calling, or post to the Main Calling Facebook page. We've given a hint already, Jamie. I like to start my programs with both of you asking you what you're be what you've test driven lately, what you've gotten to take home for a week. And Jamie, really you had a Rolls Royce and an Alfa Romeo? Yeah, actually, I still have the Alfa Romeo. I had oh the Rolls Royce about a week and a half ago. It was the Rolls Royce Dawn starting price of, you know, if you're going shopping this weekend, starting price of $335,000. Oh it has gosh. a great 575 horsepower W12 engine, which is not something you see all the time. And the floor mats um, were lamb's wool. So I felt really bad <laughs> stepping on them. But did to you be honest with you, um, did you take your kids? In I it did. With the I dropped them carpets. <laughs> yep, I dropped them off. It. This was one of the few test cars where I said, "All right, guys, no eating in this one." Um, but uh, yeah, I used it to take them to daycare, which they absolutely loved. This the the Dawn is a convertible Rolls Royce, um, and so they they loved it. It was actually um, very easy to install car seats in, which I found pretty funny, given you know that it's a a you know Rolls Royce. Um, but uh, you know, honestly, overall, I was a little bit disappointed in it. You know, for three hundred and thirty five thousand dollars, I didn't expect to see so much switch gear sourced over from BMW. It had a BMW infotainment system. And honestly, it was an incredibly smooth ride. It was like driving, um, you know, an electronic couch. So if I was to drive across Kansas and wanted a convertible to drive across Kansas in, the Dawn would be my top choice. But for around here where the roads actually curve and bend, uh, given the weight of this thing, no thanks. I'd prefer something else. I'd probably go get myself a Mercedes-Benz um, S-Class Cabriolet that they're bringing out for 2017 and then save about $200,000. Okay. And what about the Alfa Romeo? How do you like that? Well, the Alfa Romeo is a completely different animal. Um, it's still pretty expensive. It's $77,000 is the one that I'm testing. It starts at $55,000. Um, it's got 237 horsepower from a little four-cylinder engine, but it only weighs just under 2,000 pounds. Um, so it's incredibly fast. It's basically an engine that you sit on and drive. There's, it doesn't have a lot of frills to it. Um, it's a very track-ready car, um, not particularly comfortable over long distance or really any distance, um, not really good visibility. You're kind of taking your life in your hands when you uh, change lanes, you're depending on the kindness of strangers there. Um, but for pure driving thrills, uh, it's really, really tough to beat. John Paul, are the cars that you've test driven lately in the more, um, shall we call it, affordable class? Well, they're not in any of that class at all. It, in fact, I, I actually know the, the Rolls Royce that Jamie was driving. And although it started at 335000 that particular one cost about 400000 uh. So, so you know, it had about somehow it had about seventy thousand dollars worth of options in it. So let's talk. A, yeah. <laughs> let's talk about cars that our audience may may possibly. I mean, uh, not, not really saying making assumptions about our audience, but I'm guessing most of you out there are not in the market for a Rolls Royce. Jo uh, John Paul, you've been driving something that that people might actually be in the market for. Yeah, a couple of things. One was the Honda Ridgeline. The new Honda Ridgeline is uh, Honda's answer to a pickup truck. And uh, they've redesigned it after many years. And it looks a little bit more like a truck. It is a super functional vehicle. If you're somebody who wants sort of the, the ride of a typical SUV but still needs the utility of a truck, uh, I think Honda did a really nice job. And they added some features that I really like. They have this waterproof storage trunk built into the bed of the truck, which is... Um, 
I think big enough to fit Jamie in. <laughs> yes, I, think Jamie I did. Actually, put, when I had Jamie, the ridge line, yeah. I fit in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so as your standard you know, unit it, of measurement, I was going to say, Jamie. is this something you do with every car you test drive, Jamie? <laughs> climb in the truck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've done it well, with the uh, with the ridge line and the Camaro. Uh, pretty much, just it's you know, I say if it, you yeah. can fit me in it, all right. Use this car to commit yeah. some crimes. It'll be fine. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, John Paul, yeah. back to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and and Jamie, obviously, a lot more flexible than me. Um, and it was, but it was. Uh, it was a it was a it felt like a truck when you needed it to be a truck the bed is sort of this um i don't want to call it plastic but it's sort of sort of a uh a plastic bed but very strongly reinforced uh there's been some criticism of it but there's been some testing that shows that it's uh strong and durable it has a back seat that's usable for real people uh just sort of an alternative to a mid-size pickup truck and honda dependability which is really good and the other one that i that i uh was driving recently is a subaru brz a small sports car uh think alfa romeo at a third the price about twenty seven thousand dollars uh 200 horsepower not as fast not as loud but still a car that handles phenomenally and just screams out for people to do a little bit more work to it a little bit of work with the exhaust a little bit more with maybe even um, a turbocharger adding it to the engine the aftermarket people are going to love this car because it offers a great platform to build on from there and uh, Subaru did a, did a great job with this and just a fun fun car to drive uh, but a true sports car low to the ground a uh, little bit if you're not that flexible a little bit uh, difficult to get in and out of but just a fun car to drive and and uh, you know returns decent gas mileage too okay is this a bit of a change a departure for Subaru uh, up here in Maine we think about Subarus as a you know really great utility car four-wheel drive that kind of thing well, it really is. It's a rear-wheel drive sports car, um, and, it, and it is. Uh, years, uh, probably a year or so ago, I made the mistake of I was writing a review about might have been the Subaru Forester or something. I said, like all Subarus, you know, it's all-wheel drive. And the uh, criticism I got from the Subaru people about they're not all-wheel drive. There is a rear-wheel drive sports car Subaru, and of course, I, I think the same way. Subarus are dependable, go through any weather, but they have a sports car, and the, and the sports car is a really pretty good sports car. Jamie, you have been writing some, um, speaking of departures, you've been writing some articles recently that are kind of departures from your usual articles. Two headlines that are standing out to be are how to bake cookies in your car and cars that help your passengers play Pokemon Go. I thought that one might be a joke, but I looked it up. You, you actually researched this. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Pokemon Go very popular. People are walking around playing it. Um, and there are a number of features that you can use in new cars that'll help your passengers, not you. Don't play Pokemon Go if you're the driver. But if you've got kids that you're driving around and they want to play Pokemon Go, um, you know, there are cars that have, you know, in-car Wi-Fi that can help with that. There are cars that have navigation systems that are really, really good so you can find your way easily to the next Pokestop. Um, and then, of course, cars with a uh, pedestrian detection and automatic braking so that if somebody wanders out in front of your car with their face and their phone, um, you're not going to have as big a risk of hitting them. But to be clear, these are cars and you can see them at uh, usnews.com slash cars. Um, and just these are cars that will help your passengers play Pokemon Go, not you. And how to bake cookies in your car. You are not talking about rigging up an electric oven, a small toaster oven in, inside of your car, are you? 
Absolutely not. No, this was part of one, one thing we did because of the heat dome that was over uh, much of the country last week. And I mean, it's it's summer. You got to do something fun. Um, so this was actually a pretty interesting piece. And um, some U.S. News staffers down in D.C. actually did a Facebook Live um, broadcast where they broadcast the cookies baking in 95 degree heat in uh, Georgetown um, during uh, during the workday. And so what happened, um, what you want to do, if you want to bake cookies in your car, you're going to have a hard time doing it up in Maine because the temperature outside needs to be at least 95 degrees, otherwise the cookies are not going to bake. But the important actual takeaway from this, I think, is even though it's fun, like, hey, check out these cookies I made, you know, while I was sitting at my desk in work, is just how hot it gets inside a car in summertime and how important it is to make sure that you're not leaving uh, children or pets unattended in cars. Because already this year, 25 kids have died from being left in hot cars. Um, And on a 95 degree day um, down in D.C., you know, the team was measuring this, they, um, you know, the, the car temperature averaged 146 degrees inside. Oh my so gosh. on a day where it's hot enough to bake cookies in your car, um, you know, th- th- you sh- want to make sure that you're not leaving your kids behind. And the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has some great tips um, that you can go and, and look at safercar.gov and see, you know, ways that you can make sure that you're not leaving children or pets inside a car. All right. That's that's great advice. I can't believe 25 already this year. John Paul, um, we were talking before the program and I was talking about when I was a younger reporter, remembering that this time of year when there was a lot of tourism traffic, we were always doing news stories about all the breakdowns on the main turnpike. And it doesn't seem to be the case anymore. But AAA has recently done a study that's sort of related to this summer breakdown idea that they still happen, right? Oh, they certainly still happen. Not the way they used to. It used to be overheating. People were stuck in traffic. Their cars overheated. Uh, you don't see that quite as much anymore, but technology is causing some of the breakdowns now. So many cars today have low-profile tires, so tar- tires with narrow sidewalls that are very susceptible to potholes, breaks in the pavement, bumping a curb that cause flat tires. So generally speaking, one out of four of our road service calls are for a flat or damaged tire. Uh, then dead batteries, still very popular. We still see a lot of dead batteries on the road. The typical life of a battery is between three and five years. And although batteries stress more in the wintertime when they're trying to crank over a cold engine, it's the heat that actually does a battery in. So if we have uh, temperatures hot enough to bake cookies, we also have temperatures hot enough to bake the inside of a battery, which can cause the battery to fail. So we still have a fair amount of battery failures. Also, uh, Jamie and I both like um, push-button start cars, cars that we can leave our keys in our pocket, walk up to the car, grab the car door, uh, push the start button, and Me drive too. away. <laughs> and you too. And But what happens is the car has to recognize that that key is nearby. And what happens to a lot of people, especially people that own garages, they'll drive up, they'll leave their keys on their cup holder, they'll close the garage door, the car is secured for the night, but... Because the car never actually, the key never actually leaves the car. It thinks the it thinks you're still there, so it doesn't completely power down all the electrical systems. So you might drive your car home on a Friday night, park your car in the garage, and then go bike riding or have some other fun stuff to do for the weekend. Monday morning, you go out there, you hit the start button, the car doesn't start. Well, it never fully shut all the electronics off on the car because it thinks you're still there, even though you're not. So we're we're seeing some of the technology that's starting to affect some of our road service calls as well, and we still have. 
You know, we still have to tow cars. Cars still run poorly. Uh, but you're right. It, years ago, Saturday morning was spent, open up the hood, check all the fluids, check the belts, check the hoses, make sure everything was all in good condition. Today, cars are generally so dependable, but when they break down, they can, it can be a real issue. Okay, if you'd like to join the conversation, 1-800-399-3566, 1-800-399-3566. You can send an email to talk at mpbn.net, tweet at Maine Calling, or post to our Facebook page. We have our first good practical tip of the hour, which is do not leave your keys of your keyless entry car in the cup holder. Put it, put them in your pocket, put them in your bag. Um, I wanted to ask you all about the news coming out of Tesla. There are two things in the past couple of weeks. One, the creation, the the building of this giant um, gigafactory to create car batteries and even beyond car batteries, uh, just a new generation of batteries. And then also the Tesla and Solar City today um, announcing that they're merging. That's Elon Musk's solar power company. How significant is all this, Jamie? It's incredibly significant. Um, Tesla, I think, you know, a lot of people don't know what to do with it because they make cars, um, but they're not really a car company. I think at this point, they're more of a lifestyle company. And what they're really trying to turn into is an energy company. Um, so that's where the merger with Solar City comes in. I mean, Tesla already has developed um, a giant, basically, house battery where you can store, um, store plenty of power, you know, within your own house. So you could potentially, you know, with the combination of Solar City and their, their storage units um, or their giant house batteries, uh, you could potentially, you know, be off the grid with all Tesla products because you could drive one of their electric cars. You could have, you know, their solar panels on your roof and that sort of thing. And so I think what's what's sort of incumbent upon people is to stop thinking about it the same way that they think about, you know, GM or Toyota. Um, this is a significantly, you know, new business that they're entering into, and it'll be interesting to see where they end up. John Paul, I know that um, electric car sales have been disappointing for electric car manufacturers for the past couple years. Do you believe this is just a, um, a glitch and that 10, 20 years from now, electric cars will be the norm or, or not so much? Are you not convinced? I'm not convinced they're going to be really the norm. I, I really believe that electric cars are going to be a part of the overall scheme of what powers vehicles. Um, years ago, when Tesla first came out and Fisker first came out, I kind of looked at both of those companies and said, I think in 50 years, we're going to look at both of these companies the same way historians look at uh, Tucker and said they had a good time, they built some interest, they built a few interesting cars, and they sort of faded away into the landscape, And the, but there's still an interesting point in history. Well, Fisca kind of went that way, but Tesla still is uh, – doing well and uh like this home battery pack combined with the solar city project i, I think is is really really interesting but i think really when it comes down to how we look at cars and what we do with them i think it's going to be you're still going to be able to check a box and it's going to be oh i want the you know latest four-door sedan oh i'm going to get it in a electric version i don't really want that i'll get it in a gasoline version maybe i'll get it in a diesel version maybe i'll get it in a gasoline electric hybrid version i think it's going to be a part of that and i at least in the foreseeable future i don't see electric cars being more than maybe 15 percent of the fleet of vehicles on the road uh it, you know that could change and i could be completely wrong but i think it's still going to be a piece of something we're going to see and the tesla is a fabulous car to drive i finally got to drive one and really really enjoyed it and you 
you know, found out how, you know, great it was to drive. And, you know, people that drive them all the time figure out how to make the range work for them. So fun car to drive. You know, the future is still, you know, that's still yet to be written. Jamie, I think it was another thing that's been interesting I read in the last week is that VW has again surpassed Toyota as the number one um, selling car maker in the world. Are you surprised by that despite the emission scandal? No, I mean, not particularly. I mean, that's something that VW has been working towards, you know, for a very long time. And possibly, you know, I think we all know now that they've cut some corners in order to do it, because um, a lot of those sales were of, you know, in the past were of, were of diesels that were not up to emission standards. Um, but I mean, VW is a huge car company. Um, they are in almost every single market out there. So they've got a lot of cars to sell. And to be honest with you, you know, the diesel gate aside, um, you know, when you compare a Jetta to other affordable small cars, it's still a very, very good product. Um, and there's still plenty of people out there who like what VW um, are selling. And on top of that, you know, now, um, since the scandal, um, you can get a great deal on a VW <laughs> because their, their prices have dropped so much. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's not particularly surprising, but it does speak to um, kind of what you have to sell in order to be the largest car maker in the world. And it's, it's not really cars. In a lot of cases, it ends up being, you know, ethics. Um, so it's just kind of both a not a surprising thing that they're that they're at the top, but it's also kind of a cautionary tale of, of what you need to do to get there. All right. Well, we're going to take your questions when we get back from our break. Stay with us. This is Maine Calling. You make Maine Calling possible, as does the Maine Arts Commission, hosting the Maine International Conference on the Arts in Lewiston-Auburn, October 6th and 7th, mainearts.com. Patty Naimond here from NPR News. We all know on-air membership campaigns are a fact of life, Unfortunately, especially when they go on for days and days and days and days, Maine Public Radio and you have amazingly solved this to a very large degree with the One Day Super Thursday campaign. Another one's coming right up, and there are some very important new member and dollar goals that the station has to reach. And we all want to keep the One Day option alive and well and those interruptions to a minimum. So in order to make sure that no one is left out of the One Day event and miss a chance to contribute to the goal, any calls or online pledges made right now and up to the end of the day on Super Thursday will count. You can call 800 866 1475 now or anytime, or pledge online at mpbn.net. It will all count. And thank you. Super Thursday is coming up this Thursday, August 4th. One of our main public classical FM stations is off the air and will be for some time. WFYB Freiburg 91.5 FM is in need of repair, and we're working on it as quickly as possible. Please note this is a significant situation, and it may be off the air for a week or two. We apologize for the inconvenience, and we're working to remedy the situation as soon as we can. Maine Public Classical can also be streamed online at mpbn.net, heard statewide on the HD2 channel of our Maine Public Radio frequencies, and is still available over the air in Portland at 104.1, Waterville, 99.7, and in Bangor at 106.1. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on the program, all things automotive. On the line with us, Jamie Page Deaton. She is automotive editor for U.S. News and World Report. And John Paul is senior manager of public affairs for AAA Northeast. He is also a master mechanic. We invite you to join the conversation. Call 1-800-399-3566. That's 
1-800-399-3566. You can send us a brief email to talk at mpbn.net, tweet at Maine Calling, or post to our Facebook page. And before we get to the calls, uh, John Paul, I want to ask you about your new podcast. You are now the car doctor? Well, I, I've always done that. But, yeah, the podcast was something, you know, every, everybody needs to learn something new. So I said, how do I do this podcasting thing? And I found a website where I could host it and just um, sort of talk about cars in the industry a little bit and uh, play around. And, and it's just uh, kind of a fun thing to do. The most interesting thing about the podcast so far is who actually listens to it. And um, and I find, that, I find that for some reason or another, and it must be the – the sound of my voice or something, I, I get listened to four times more often in the U.K. than I do in the United States. Oh, well, we'll try to change that. We'll put a link to it on yeah. our MEBN yeah. Main Calling Facebook page for you. We're going to go to the phones now, and we will start in Portland with Paul. Hi, Paul. Go ahead. You're on Main Calling. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I have a 2008 Volvo uh, X, uh, XC90 that I got used uh, very recently, and when I'm driving, I notice between, seems to be about between 40 and 60, uh, that it feels like it's just a fair amount of whining noise, and it seems to whine a little bit more if I turn a little bit to the left than to the right. And a recent, in, a, in a recent uh, uh, maintenance I had done, they said there was slight noise from the rear differential. So I guess my question is, do you have some idea how much it costs to fix this, and how long can I drive until I really need to deal with it? Well, uh, you could certainly drive it, you know, probably forever until it breaks, because it probably isn't going to cost a lot more to fix it now than it is when it finally fails, unfortunately. Um, so, it, you know, it really depends on what they find when they when they go to take it apart and look at it. But uh, there's no, there's chances are there's not any cheap way around this. It, it could be the uh, internally the carrier itself, and that could be that could be. Um, literally $4,000 plus four or five hours worth of labor to replace it. And that's assuming that everything needs to be replaced. Um, so, if you know, at this point, they did they give you any idea what they thought it might be if, uh, if well, they thought it could be? I have to call them back and talk to them because uh, I, I, well, I didn't pick up the car myself. Oh, okay. Yeah, I you know the the other thing is Volvo, like many companies, are very specific about lubricants and changing lubricants at certain times. Um, it may be even something that uh, you know changing changing the uh, lubricant and then putting in if if Volvo has an updated uh, type of lubricant that it may take away some of this wine you're getting. But chances are it's probably a bearing starting to fail inside of it, and it, and it depends if they take it apart and try to service it. Again, you're probably looking at four or five hours worth of labor plus disassembly. If they say, hey, there, there's not really a lot we can service on this, we have to we have to take it all apart. We, we when we take it apart, it doesn't go back together right. We need to put the whole assembly. In, or I, you could get lucky, and maybe it's just an an axle an axle bearing, which would be cheaper. But uh, still, it's, it's it can still you know get expensive depending on what they've what they've tried to narrow down when they've looked at it. Right, and so when it yeah. fails, it fails somewhat catastrophically. Um, it'll just get noisier and noisier and noisier to the point where you you'll think you know there's a truck driving next to you with snow tires on it. 
and you go, what is that noise? And you'll, you'll keep hearing it. Uh, and again, depending on what, depending on what is, whether it's internal inside the, the, uh, carrier assembly or whether it's external, one of the, one of the, um, uh, outward, uh, axle bearings. If that's the case, it, that would be, that would be a bit cheaper, but still, but still expensive. Well, Paul, good luck to you. Um, we'll move on to an email. This is from Dan. He says, what do they think of the BMW 328 and 535 diesel cars? Jamie? I actually have not been in either one of those. Um, however, I know the, B, the the 328 diesel is one of the most popular cars with car reviewers. Um, you know, at US News, we collect and we analyze every published and credible review of a given model. Um, so having gone through all of the reviews of the 328, um, people absolutely love it. And so I think, you know, if it's a buy, don't buy kind of situation, I would say go with the 328. You'll love it. If you need a little bit more space, then the 5 Series diesel works great as well. All right. We're going to, and John Paul, you agree with her? Uh, yeah, I have to agree with that. You know, the, the diesel engines in the BMWs are, are great, and so far BMW hasn't cheated on any tests that I know of. We'll move to Bar Harbor and Kevin. Hi, Kevin. Go ahead. You're on main calling. Thank you. Uh, several years ago, probably in the mid-'80s, when uh, Fiat ended up uh, leaving U.S. market, the government made them make parts available for all the cars that were in the market so that the people who were the owners at least could uh, could buy cars. Now, GM has forced few brands out. For example, Saab is one of the brands that GM practically closed. And, and they had some models in the U.S. that were late models, like in 2011 and 2012, that General Motors just owned those brands. You kind of bought those cars, and then they said that there are not even any warranties applying to those cars. But the parts are now becoming more and more scarce to purchase. I was wondering if there were similar rulings that General Motors had to provide cars for those uh, brands, uh, and if anybody is aware of where would such a ruling apply and who one would go to enforce it. That's well, that's an interesting really question. question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I do you don't have an answer? <laughs> yes, I, I have perhaps not the best answer in the world, but the difference between Fiat and GM is Fiat didn't have any, you know, sister brands that were going to soldier on within the U.S. GM did. So, for example, you know, GM shut down Saturn. You should still be able to get parts for your Saturn through a Chevy dealership for a certain number of years. Saab, it's a little bit more difficult because there is less platform sharing between Saab and other GM brands when Saab left. However, there was some platform sharing going on still. Um, so you should still be able to find replacement parts for your SOBs if it shared a platform with a uh, your late model SOB, for example, if it shared a platform with, um, I know that they, I think that was the 97X, the SUV that, that GM built for SOB. Um, I think it shares a platform and, and some parts with, uh, I think actually the Buick Enclave. Um, so if you go to other GM dealers, um, you should be able to find parts that will work for your car. So what I would do is um, I would hop online, research and see which parts, if any, were shared from a late model Saab to other, you know, with other GM products. If those products are still available or, or if those brands are still ongoing, um, you should be able to go to one of their dealerships and get a fix uh, using parts from their brand. No, 100%. It's um, even down my way, there's a, there's a, um, a warehouse uh, near Boston that has a huge number of uh, Saab pots. And they're sort of, from what I understand, they're sort of the East Coast distributor of Saab pots right now. So there are a lot of parts available. And even some of the cars that have gone away over the years, like uh, Pontiac and, like you mentioned, more recently Saturn, uh, you know, the, the Internet's a wonderful place for those things. And I've found parts that are absolutely 
absolutely not available at, at dealerships, and you find them on eBay, brand new, in the box, reasonably priced. So there's always there's always a way around this, and even with some sheet metal parts, there those parts are available in the aftermarket in many cases, so easy enough to find and match. So I, I think uh, regarding a, a, a federal requirement, there is a... I always heard there was a minimum requirement for a certain period of time, but like Jamie pointed out, a lot of these parts are available uh, through sort of sister brands where where those parts shared a lot. And even even people that are still driving around, you know, when GM was importing Opals years back, you can still find the parts. It's just you're just not going to find them the next day, but they're they're out there. Good luck to you, Kevin. Our phone number, 1-800-399-3566, 1-800-399-3566. Our email, talk at mpbn.net. We have an email from Eileen in Portland. She writes, two shows ago, you discussed cars without spare tires and purchasing one. My Volvo does not have a spare. AAA's Research Institute states that a spare is optional, but it is not. The dealer told me a full-size tire only at $500 for the wheel plus the tire would fit in my trunk. A local tire dealer looked all over the country and all vendors and could not find a temporary tire or a run-flat tire that would fit in my car. Is there a spare somewhere for my car? If not, why isn't a tire manufacturer addressing a market need? John? Well, they're really, you know, it really is. We're seeing, we're seeing probably 20% of the cars that are sold today probably don't have a spare tire. In fact, when people call for road service, we have a list of about 135 or so cars that may or may not have a spare tire. They may have a spare tire repair kit and no tire whatsoever. They may have nothing. I, I recently drove a uh, Mercedes CLA and I looked in the trunk and there was, there wasn't, there wasn't even a kit. All there was was a bar so you could tow the car and hopefully, and it was on run flat so the car would sort of stay up on all four wheels, but still it wasn't designed to, to, you know, if you, if you blew out a tire completely, you were, you were in trouble. So is there a spare tire available? Probably somewhere. Unfortunately, you may have to be faced with the idea of a full-size replacement, so a wheel and tire that's going to take up most of the trunk. And but if you want that security of having of having a uh, of having a spare tire, uh, this is where your local salvage yard might be able to help save you a little bit of money, where you could buy maybe a used wheel and tire for a hundred dollars that you could put in the trunk, and it'd be good enough to get you out of uh, out of a scrape in case of an emergency. John, why the change is? Is it a matter of um, trying to make cars lighter? Is it trying to cut costs? Is it something else? It's all of those things. Uh, it you know when the lighter you make a car, the more economical it is. And when car manufacturers are literally putting cars on gram diets, they're looking for a gram here and a gram here to try to make the car lighter, lighter wiring harnesses, uh, foam in the seats that's not as heavy. They looked at this 50 or 60 pound spare tire in the trunk and said, what do we need this for? We can take this out. People don't get flat tires the way they used to anyway, so why bother? Some of it is cost. That that uh, that wheel and tire can be fairly expensive, but so can't the replacement kit that uh, you get a you get a uh, basically a bottle of 
uh, goop that, uh, that gets pumped in with a little air compressor, and hopefully that fixes the flat if you have it. But if you've done real damage to the tire, all you're going to do is call for help and get a tow. And that obviously that's inconvenient. And if you're out in the middle of nowhere, it's really inconvenient. Uh, as many different cars as I drive, I always look in the trunk and see if there's a spare tire there. And I do get a little, you know, sometimes I'm, if I'm on a long road trip, I'm thinking, why I would really like to see a spare tire in this rather than a, a uh, a uh, little air compressor and an 800 number to call for help. Mm. We're going to go to Doug, who's calling from Freeport. Hi, Doug. Go ahead. Hi, Jennifer. Um, I want to get back to some of the conversation earlier about electric cars and hybrid cars, and particularly the future profitability models for these cars. I and mean, when you look at Toyota, they've had a, a, a great uh, result with the Prius, and the cars are popular. But when you look at uh, Tesla, um, they build a great car. They're not selling all that many cars, particularly given the, the millions of dollars in debt that they've taken on for factory development. And then when you look at General Motors with the Volt, which I think is now the Volt, um, are, are either of these companies going to be able to produce some type of return on investment or any profitability? And if that's not the case, then what does that really say about uh, our future prospects for electric cars and hybrid cars if we can't even get both small and large manufacturers to, to make any money selling the thing. Jamie, thoughts? Oh, yeah. Lots of thoughts. Um, first, you know, even though the, the Prius is the best-selling hybrid car in America, you've got to keep in mind um, that hybrid and electric cars are still only 2% of car sales every year, and that's a good year. I think they peaked at 3%. So, yes, the Prius is a very popular hybrid, but I think to say overall that it's a popular car is simply not the case. And it's interesting, too, to, you know, bringing up the point of, you know, are we going to see electric cars if nobody can make money selling them? Um, what it really comes down to is for consumers do electric cars make sense? And at this point, no. Um, if you look at, you know, the extra money that you'd pay for a hybrid or an electric car compared to a gas-only car, given current gas prices, it just doesn't make economic sense at an individual level. I mean, it's a reasonable, rational cho rational choice to say, you know what, I'm going to save my money, and saving money right now means driving a gas-only car. Now, if gas prices go up, that changes. But even if you do the math on it, I mean, gas prices really need to go north of $5 a gallon and stay north of $5 a gallon before a lot of these hybrids and EVs start making economic sense for individuals. And that really is what's going to need to happen in order f um, for car companies to start making on electric cars. Because they've made huge... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to ask you, Jamie, if that calculation is even true with the... You mentioned the Prius, because that's a car that can be bought in the you know low 20000 thousands. Yeah, but you could also go and get like a Chevy Sonic, which can be bought for like $15,000 or so. Um, and there, you know, you're getting, I think, up close to 40 miles per gallon. So you're talking about like a 10 MPG advantage for the Prius for, you know, maybe $10,000 more. And if you do on a per mile cost basis, it can take upwards of 10 years, you know, giving gas prices to actually make up that price difference. So if you're talking about the cheapest car to buy on a mile per mile basis, the Prius is not going to be it um, for a lot of people. I mean, granted, if you drive a lot of miles, that payoff is going to come a lot faster. So you've got to do the math for yourself. Um, but really what it comes down to is, you know, consumers need to adopt this technology. Um, gas prices need to go up for people to do it. Um, and that's, I just don't think you're going to get away from this kind of, you know, the, the kitchen table economics where it's individuals are going to decide if this technology makes sense for me. And for most people, it's just not there yet. 
All right. Well, Doug, thanks for your question. And we do have to take another short break. If you'd like to join the conversation, 1-800-399-3566. Again, 1-800-399-3566. This is Maine Calling. You make Maine Calling possible, as does Wayne Fleet, the kind of school that teaches a student, not a class. Learn more at waynefleet.org. What happens in Maine stays in Maine, or at least we hope so, and we hope it keeps on happening. I'm talking about those amazing one-day on-air Maine membership campaigns. What an amazing thing for everyone. This is Robert Siegel from NPR's All Things Considered. The one-day Super Thursday campaigns have worked exceedingly well for Maine Public Radio, and for listeners too, of course, and the station is doing all it can to make sure that it keeps the one-day on-air campaign alive. Well, now here's what's happening. With very important new member and dollar goals, the station is concerned that some of you will miss that one Super Thursday coming up. So all calls and pledges online leading up to the one day will also count towards those important goals. The number is 800-866-1475. You can pledge online at mpbn.net. The campaign is underway now, so let's make sure that the on-air portion remains only that one day Super Thursday. Thank you. Super Thursday is coming up this Thursday, August 4th, right here on Maine Public Radio. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you're listening to Maine Calling. Today on the program, our favorite auto experts, U.S. News and Reports, Jamie Page Deaton and AAA's John Paul. They're both on the line with me. And, of course, we want to hear from you. Are you in the market for a new car? Do you have questions about your existing car? 1-800-399-3566. That's 1-800-399-3566. We'll go to an email from Kelsey. She writes, what? affordable vehicle or vehicles would you recommend for a family Jamie this will sound familiar to you with two young kiddos and parents of above average height we don't want a gas guzzler and need something affordable even a recommendation for what we could track down used would be great with a rear facing car seat for the baby plus another for big sister and back everything we've taken for a test drive lacks in leg room we're not giant by any means but i just can't stand the road trip to grandma's house with my knees at my chin thanks all right i've been there kelsey i share your pain uh, i'm not particularly tall, as evidenced by the fact that I can fit in most car trunks, but my husband is. So this is an issue that has really come up a lot for us with test cars. Um, you didn't mention what you've already test driven. Um, so off the top of my head, um, and you're probably not going to like this, um, I would look at a Honda Odyssey or a Toyota Sienna, a Kia Sedona, even used. These are great minivans. The nice thing about minivans is they have really upright seating positions. So your legroom tends to happen on the down as opposed to on the out in front of you, as they do in most cars. Um, with a Sienna, you can even get all-wheel drive, which is really nice, you know, living up in New England. If you don't want a minivan, um, some of the best compact SUVs I've found for rear-facing car seats are the Honda CRV, which is their, their compact SUV. It's got decent space, doesn't guzzle gas, but, you know, it's no Prius. And then the Honda HRV, which is actually a subcompact SUV. I really don't know how Honda managed to violate the laws of physics to get so much interior space in such a tiny package, but I had my son in it um, in a rear-facing car seat, and my six-foot-tall husband was able to sit comfortably in the front seat um, in front of that rear-facing car seat. Um, so that's a good option, too. And again, I have no idea how they've managed to get so much interior space into such a small package. Um, beyond that, a lot of compact SUVs like the Ford Escape, um, even some that really straddle the line between compact and midsize SUVs 
again, you know, if you want space, you're going to pay for it in terms of fuel economy. Um, but consider also, you know, the, the uh, GMC Terrain or the Chevy Equinox, because those are really kind of on the line uh, between compact and midsize and give you a little bit more space overall. All right. Well, good luck to you, Kelsey. And we're going to go up to Fort Fairfield. And John, hi, John, go ahead. Okay. I got a little rebuttal for you on your uh, evaluation of the Prius. I have gone, uh, I've got, I've had four of them. Uh, every one of them I've taken at least 150,000 miles. I have a plug-in right now, and you're right, they're expensive. It was 32,000. I've got 160,000 on this one. It's a 2013. And I have not taken any of them in for any repairs of any kind since I've owned them. So that. That is my point, and I and I think because this one here is the uh, not the nickel metal hydride, but the uh, lithium. I'm looking at about three hundred thousand miles before I'm going to trade this in. Now, John, I don't think did our I don't believe Jamie or John Paul said Priuses have problems. Did you guys? Not me. No, but I think he's talking about in terms of overall cost to own, not having repairs is certainly a savings, and I, I would agree with that. I'm talking about, though, when you're talking about fuel economy and what needs to happen for people to adopt electric cars, I think most people, you know, when they're buying a car, we're not really good as, as humans at looking forward and assuming that the worst is going to happen, um, so we don't really think about repair costs. But if you're talking about on a cost per mile versus the amount of money that you spend, I feel really badly because I should have done the math before it and brought it in. Next time I'm on, I'll bring it. I'll bring in the math of Prius per cost per mile to drive versus some other cars cost per mile to drive, and how long it takes to make up, and how many miles you have to drive to make up the price difference between the two. But that's really what I'm talking about. The Prius may have a lower per mile cost to drive than many many other cars out there, and I would say most other cars out there. But because it's ex more expensive than some other smaller cars that also have very good fuel economy, the number of miles you have to drive to make up the price difference is longer than most people actually own their cars. And I think John. You know, keeping the Priuses, all four of them, for you know, three hundred thousand miles. I think that's great because that's where you've entered the point where the Prius really starts paying for itself. But again, you know, you've you've got a sample of one. Most people just don't keep their cars that long, and that's not how most people behave. And until gas prices get high enough to sort of change the behavior of the average everyday car buyer, we're not going to see widespread adoption of hybrid or electric cars. Right. So you're not saying uh, what sh people should or shouldn't do. You're reflecting in what what studies show people do do. When they're making yeah their exactly I mean this is I, I would I think it would be great if everyone switched over to electric cars I mean there'd be a heck of a long line at the you know superchargers uh, down at the rest stops over you know along 95 um, but at this point you know people are acting like the rational beings they are they're saying I've got X amount of money to spend on a car this is how much the car is going to cost me over time is it worth it to me to spend more to get a, a hybrid or an electric given the current gas prices no it's not. John, thanks for your call. We're going to go to Belfast and Kristen. Hi, Kristen. Go ahead. Yes. Hi. Uh, my husband and I are uh, about to buy a new car. We have held on to a 1999 Honda Accord for a long time, and it's you know it's time. And so we have been doing our research and went on to Consumer Reports, and you know we're really bowled over by their recommendation for the uh, uh, Subaru Forester. So we went to our uh, first car dealer um, on Friday and found out, well, just before we went, we went online once more to just clarify the different features that we absolutely wanted, we had to have, um, and discovered that the 2017 was listed. 
So here we are. We go in, and they're trying to sell off the 2016s before the 2017 arrives. But the price difference is not that much difference. It seems like only a couple hundred dollars or maybe, a, you know, not even a thousand dollars difference, and you get a lot more features, especially the eyesight um, safety feature, which prevents um, uh, front-on and I think rear collisions um, can help with that. So, but it hasn't been tested fully yet. So I want to know what your panel thinks of the 2017 Forester, and is it worth getting versus the 2016? Have either of you driven it yet? I, I have not. I've driven the 2016 and found it to be, uh, you know, a great Subaru like a lot of Subarus are. Uh, you, you know, for somebody who keeps a car a few years, buying the newest model you can buy makes sense because you're going to get the best return when you go to trade it back in. Now, you, if you keep a car for 20-some-odd years, well, it's a, it, it, it really is irrelevant. So you have to look at what options come in the 2017 versus the 2016 and look and see does spending $1,000 more to get the eyesight system that you want. And just to just to kind of, uh, at least on the 2016 model, the eyesight system, one of, this, one of the issues is very cold weather or very bright sunlight, it tends to want to shut down. So it doesn't work all the time where you think it, should, but uh, it can shut down in certain weather conditions. Uh, but uh, overall, if you're looking for a car that is practical, gets reasonable gas mileage, has a ton of room inside of it, it you, it's it's pretty hard not to recommend the Forester. Uh, although that be said, some of the earlier models, 14 and 15, had some oil consumption problems, which Subaru fixed by actually just about replacing the engine. So. Yeah, I would also just add to that, you know, the differences between the 2017 Forester and the 2016 Forester are pretty slight. I mean, you have some styling differences on the front end of the grill, new headlights, taillights. Um, and then what you noticed, you know, Kristen, is, is that there's wider feature availability. Um, and that's what's and, and that's what's going to push the price difference. Why the 2017 is a little bit more expensive is because you're getting a little bit more for your money. Um, because there's not a lot of difference in the mechanical parts of the car, I would say that, the you know, I don't want to speak for consumer reports. I don't work for consumer reports, but I would imagine the recommendation would hold because these cars aren't very far apart. So if you like the 2017 and you don't mind spending the money, I'd say go for it. But I would also just second, you know, I've had um, a couple of Subarus with eyesight and anytime I'm driving, you know, west while the sun is going down, it goes out. So it's one of those systems that are that are great to have. Do not start to depend on it um, because in some conditions it's just not going to work. All right, Kristen, good luck to you. We're going to go to Arousic and Fred. Hi, Fred, go ahead. Hi, I am the owner of a 2001 Acura 3.5 RL, and it has 200,000-plus miles on it. All the sensor lights on the dashboard are on, including these airbags, and there's no Acura dealer in Maine. Do you have any thoughts about uh, how likely it is the airbags are not working? Well, also, pretty likely. About a Saab. I have a 2008 Saab. Both these cars are terrific, and I'm just wondering if you know if Saab will continue to supply parts. Thank you. Okay, let's take them one at a time. First, the Acura, John. Well, chances are if the airbag light's on, the airbag is not going to work in a collision. That is pretty typical uh, on any car. When the, airbag, when the airbag light goes on, it disables the system so it doesn't deploy when it's not supposed to. So chances are in a crash, if the crash is 
what would normally deploy an airbag, it's not going to work in this. And uh, if every light's on on the dash, well, there's there's uh, there's an issue probably with uh, electrical problem, an electrical ground somewhere that there's something not grounding properly that's shutting a lot of these safety systems off. Probably airbag traction control, anti-lock brakes, and things like that. So it, uh, even though there's not an accurate dealer around, it's uh, I believe it was a 2001 car. It's been around for 15 years now. I would think any good Honda a technician or somebody who's just generally familiar with Asian cars would be able to fix it with no real problems. Regarding the Saab, again, I think you'll be able to find Saab parts for a long time. It's just it's not going to be going to the local auto parts store and saying I need a mass airflow sensor for a Saab 9.5 and they're going to be able to take it off the shelf. It's going to be something that you know may take a few days or maybe even a worst case a few weeks. But like Jamie pointed out earlier, a lot of these parts were shared technology. So a lot of the computer systems may be compatible with other GM vehicles of the ilk, uh, if not uh, in Europe with some of the with some of the Opel vehicles, with which uh, Saab shared some parts with as well. So I think the parts are out there. It's just not they're not going to be out there immediately. You're not going to be able to go to the parts store and find them. But I think you'll always you'll always be able to find something that'll make it work. All right, thanks, Fred. Going to Douglas in Booth Bay Harbor. Hi, Douglas. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I, I'm a physicist, retired, and spent over 40 years working on energy and studying. Uh, hybrids are an excellent idea. Um, electric cars aren't, if you look at the whole, they're not as clean. The car itself is. But the charging, 67% roughly of our electricity comes from fossil fuel electric plants. Um, and, and so the pollution is somewhere else, not the car. The car itself is very clean. Well, Douglas, you make a good point. And, and Jamie and John Paul, I've seen websites where people can really calculate, based on where they live, what their energy mix is and whether or not having an electric car that one charges, um, you know, evaluating how good that is for the environment. It, it's a different calculation for different places, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely. Really and yeah, and it's one of those things. This is, I think, you know, Douglas makes a great point because you have all these electric car owners who say, well, you know, my car is emission free. And it's, well, it's emission free at the tailpipe because an electric car doesn't have a tailpipe. Um, but I think this goes back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier with Tesla, with the the building the Gigafactory, with their home battery pack, with their merger with SolarCity. Tesla, as compared to other um, car companies, is really trying to make it so your Tesla can be emission-free because you would be using solar power to power your house, to charge up the batteries within your house, and then charging your car with solar power. Um, and that's really kind of their game. And that's why I was saying, you know, they're not really a car company. They're, they're, they're moving from, you know, being a lifestyle company to being an energy company. John Paul, you have something quickly to add or just you agree? Uh, <laughs> no, and, and if you really think of what the future is, if you think that you can charge your home battery pack with your solar panel and then you can use that same home battery pack to do a quick charge on your car, so charge up your car 70% in 20 minutes with this home battery pack, then 
it's, it makes a lot of sense. But to have all that happen, it takes a lot of acceptance all the way across the lines. Well, those are going to have to be our last words today. Douglas, thanks for your call. Uh, Jamie Page Dean, automotive editor for U.S. News and World Report. John Paul, senior manager of public affairs for AAA Northeast and master mechanic. As always, thank you for joining us. Nikki Shields ran the board today with technical help from John Keimel and our friends at New Hampshire Public Radio. Main Calling is produced by Jonathan Smith and Cindy Hahn. Tomorrow on the program, join me for an update on current events in the Middle East and what options the U.S. and other countries have to confront terrorism. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you've been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.